God said to Noah, I am about to bring the flood on the earth, to destroy everywhere all creatures in which there is breath of life. Everything on earth shall perish. But with you I will establish my covenant. You and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives, shall go into the ark. Of all other living creatures, you shall bring two into the ark, one male and one female, that you may keep them alive with you. Genesis chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. History makes numerous references to disasters. Pliny the Elder, a Roman writer and philosopher, died during a volcanic eruption of Mount Vesuvius in A.D. 79. His nephew, Pliny the Younger, described the incident in a letter that he wrote to Tacitus, a Roman historian, who specifically requested an account of that catastrophe. The eruption of Mount Vesuvius probably killed tens of thousands of people. More recent disaster history includes the Indian Ocean tsunami that took the lives of hundreds of thousands of people in Malaysia, Thailand, India, and other countries in that region of the world in 2004. Like most other disasters, the events in ancient Rome and in the modern-day Indian Ocean have been memorialized in writing, in film, and in other media. History is particularly good at recording the details of cataclysms, possibly because people love to hear stories about bad times, it is much harder to dig up facts about historical periods when things were generally going well. Disaster, in fact, has been a crowd-pleaser for much longer than writing has existed. This episode opened with a passage from the biblical story of Noah and the Great Flood. The story of Noah and the Flood was most likely passed down by word of mouth for a long time, perhaps for thousands of years, before it was recorded in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis in the Bible. This narrative became something fundamental to our Western traditions thousands of years ago. In the Gospels and in the New Testament literature that spread the message of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire some 20 centuries ago, Jesus and the Apostles all make references to Noah. And since then, this Old Testament story has always been well known among even the least faithful of Christians, even among non-believers in societies that are just nominally Christian. This should not be surprising, given the already mentioned appreciation for tales of disaster, Textual evidence also points to the importance of this singular tale for our ancient ancestors. There are only ten chapters in the book of Genesis that are devoted to prehistoric times. Of those ten chapters, a full four are dedicated to the story of Noah, the flood, and its aftermath. No other tale from this portion of scripture receives such attention. Clearly, it was a significant story for the people responsible for the composition and compilation of the Bible. Even reading the story of the flood today, in less credulous times, it is a marvelous tale, and it is worth reviewing it here not only because the tale is so familiar to Western culture, but also because the moral ideas behind it are concepts with which Western people will struggle for thousands of years. Noah is a hero very characteristic of scriptural heroes who are more often idolized for their piety and faithfulness to God than for their accomplishments in battle, Samson and David being significant exceptions to this rule. Indeed, the comparison of Hebrew heroes and Greek or Roman heroes demonstrates an interesting cultural contrast. In the typical Greek or Roman heroic myth, 
The hero overcomes adversity with his strength, or with his wits. Odysseus, for example, is famous for trickery. Achilles and Aeneas were famous for their courage. Hero stories, however, play out differently in the Hebrew scriptures. It is not the hero who governs events in these stories, but rather God and the events that he brings into play, which guide the narrative. In the tale of the flood, Noah, a man known for righteousness rather than physical strength or military acumen, is merely along for the ride. In the four chapters of Genesis devoted to the flood, God is characteristically very present, as he is in most of the text of the first five books of the Bible. Here, in Genesis chapter 6, God declares doom openly for all mankind. He tells Noah that wickedness has reached its peak, and he tells them this quite openly. However, Noah has demonstrated unique worthiness in the eyes of God. He alone is granted clemency among all mankind to escape the coming wrath, which will arrive in the form of a terrible flood. So God instructs Noah to build an ark, a large ship in which to house his family and pairs of every living creature, so that all may be renewed from this remnant after the flood. Notably, Noah does not construct a sailing ship. Noah is given no safe destination for which to sail. The ark is basically a big tub, which will depend on the providence of God to guide it safely through the storm. This is fitting because Noah is apparently regarded as a man most faithful to God during this time. Noah and his family enter the ark just before the rains begin to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. This is the first time that someone reading the Bible will encounter this enigmatic time period, 40 days. It is not the last time. This trope will be a recurring one in the Bible, all the way through to the New Testament, in which Jesus fasts for 40 days and nights in the wilderness. The flood covers the earth. Presumably, it kills off every land creature on the planet. This world-covering sea endures for several months, until the ark makes landfall in the mountains of Ararat, in the southern portion of the country known today as Turkey. Here, the remaining animal life on earth decants from the ark and disperses to be fruitful and to multiply anew. There is much to be learned in a deep study of this story. For example, the word ark has an interesting meaning and is used again in the Bible for objects which might not seem related to the non-religious reader. And the textual study of this story reveals the possible blending of more than one account into a singular epic tale. But it is enough for the purposes of this podcast to relate the essential flood account for a couple of reasons. For one, because flood accounts are common around the world and fundamental to cultures both East and West. In ancient Mesopotamian the Levant, stories of heroes surviving a flood with divine help and a large ship are also common. But before we move on with the history and archaeology of the prehistoric period in which this tale most likely arose, it is also important to note a theme in Noah's story, which will recur again and again, not just in the Bible, but in Western history itself. This theme is the theme of renewal, of starting over. Americans listening to this podcast should take particular note, because their very country was founded on this idea. Many of the colonists that originally came over from Europe, especially the Puritanical pilgrims, harbored the idea that the world which they were escaping was overflowing with wickedness, with corruption, with greed, with oppression, both religious and political. Whoever they were, pilgrims or not, they were generally escaping something. They came to the new world with the express intent of starting over, of renewing themselves and society. American literature, before and after the Revolution, is fraught with this notion, and it probably forms a great part of the psychology even of the non-religious today, this belief in the possibility of starting over, of renewal after calamities, either personal or societal.
The biblical account of a flood is not unique. Historians noted long ago that flood myths were common among many cultures, not only in the Near East, the Levant, and in Europe, but as far away as the Americas. Some assume that this is due to the reality of an ancient flood deep in the human past that was preserved in oral traditions before humanity dispersed and spread across the globe. Others thought that the story of Noah was simply one version of an original but fictional account about an ancient disaster that was meant to function as a moral tale, a way of keeping people in line morally or giving them someone to look up to in terms of moral righteousness. When Christianity became the dominant religion in the West in the late Roman era, this religion popularized the stories in the Bible, among them the story of Noah and the Flood. This story has been depicted not only in the writing of the Bible, but in art, in literature, and in the architecture of churches over the course of the last 2,000 years. However, in that late Roman era, when Christianity was becoming so popular, there was already knowledge of an ancient flood. The story of Deucalion and Pyrrha, a Greek myth, told a similar moral tale in which the gods decided that the wickedness of humans had become too much and intended to wipe them all out. In the biblical account, God preserves the life of Noah and his family due to Noah's personal righteousness. In the Greek tale, a lone human family survives simply due to their divine forebear, Prometheus, deciding to tell them ahead of time so that they may build a boat in which to escape the flood. Nevertheless, the idea that there had been a great flood and that it had come in order to destroy wicked humanity, this idea was not new. There was a great deal of excitement in the late 19th century when archaeologists discovered Sumerian civilization buried deep beneath the land that is now called Iraq. Not only did they discover structures built by this ancient society, they also discovered written records. The ancient Sumerians had inscribed thousands of clay tablets with their cuneiform writing, an ancient language system, which was eventually translated. Most of these clay tablets described financial transactions or the acts of political leadership, typically centered around individual kings who ruled over each city and its surrounding territories. Some tablets, though, contained fascinating cultural information, such as the myths surrounding the Sumerian story of creation. And there was also a series of tablets containing a long story about a famous king named Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh had ruled, according to the text, over an ancient city called Uruk. The ruins of that city once rested besides the banks of the Euphrates River, but that river has since changed course many times over the thousands of years since the time of Gilgamesh. And now the ruins of this once great city are buried beneath many meters of desert soil. Gilgamesh, according to the tablets, goes on a series of adventures which will be related in a more detailed podcast in the future. Notably, for our purposes now, during Gilgamesh's adventures and wanderings, he learns of the tale of a great flood in the human past. He speaks with a man named Utnapishtim, specially favored by the gods to survive this ancient flood in a great boat, and also gifted with immortality. This Utnapishtim relates the details of how he and his family escaped the flood. Many of the details are very similar to those found in the Noah story. Like Noah, Utnapishtim waits several months for the waters to recede, and then begins periodically releasing birds, ravens, and doves, just as Noah did, to determine if dry land had been revealed somewhere. Finally, after the boat rests on dry ground, Utnapishtim debarks and makes a sacrifice to the gods in order to give thanks, just as Noah does in Genesis, thus beginning humanity's story anew with proper respect for divinity.
Lacking evidence besides the textual, you might assume that these stories of great floods were either fictional or derived from experiences of local floods, such as when rivers may have risen suddenly and washed away the settlements of early modern humans. And there are certainly Jews and Christians today who, of course, believe that the flood was essentially as global as it is depicted to be in Scripture. In the late 20th century, however, a team of scientists proposed an alternative to these views of the ancient flood accounts, biblical or otherwise. The Black Sea, far to the north of Palestine and Mesopotamia, has some interesting characteristics that distinguish it from the nearby Mediterranean Sea and from other saltwater bodies around the world. Most notably for our purposes, the Black Sea is a meromictic body of water. This means that it is made up of two layers of water that do not mix together. Consequently, the lower layer of water is anoxic, that is, it contains no oxygen. This feature is responsible for the Black Sea's ability to preserve almost perfectly the remains of numerous shipwrecks, because the ruined hulks of sunken ships do not undergo the oxidation that causes typical shipwrecks in other oceans to deteriorate slowly over the course of time. In the late 20th century, certain scientists proposed that this layering of the Black Sea came about in an unusual fashion. In short, they thought that there had been a great flood. The Black Sea is connected to the Mediterranean only through a narrow gap of water known as the Bosporus Straits. These straits separate not just the two pieces of land on either side, but also mark the boundary between Asia and Europe, between Eastern and Western cultures and perspectives. Yet, however significant this gap may be, between continents and ideologies, the waters that flow between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean do so through a very slim passage. Never wider than 2,300 meters at any point, the straits narrow at one juncture to just 700 meters, just 700 meters between Europe, the heartland of Western culture, and the related but markedly distinct cultures of the Near East. It is known that the Black Sea thousands of years ago was not connected at all to the Mediterranean. The seabed of the present Straits of the Bosporus were above sea level during the last glacial maximum. At that time, the Black Sea was actually a huge inland lake, much smaller than it is now. The latest theory to explain the present size, composition, and layering of the Black Sea is known as the Black Sea Flood Hypothesis. There are actually multiple versions of this hypothesis with some very interesting differences in detail, but for our purposes, it is enough to describe the basic idea, and it is this. All over the world, sea levels rose after the glaciers melted. The Mediterranean eventually began to creep upward toward a narrow gap between it and the freshwater lake now known as the Black Sea. Eventually, around the year 5000 BC, the Mediterranean broke through that gap in a very sudden flood that would have poured seawater into the lake at a catastrophic rate, raising sea levels without warning and possibly inundating human settlements along the shores of this lake with little or no warning. Some estimate that the water would have poured through the, the gap with 200 times more quantity than that of Niagara Falls, some 50 cubic kilometers of water each day, a deluge worthy of le legend. While some researchers suggest a similar theory with a more gradual change in water levels of the Black Sea, there is good reason to believe in the possibility of this hypothesis. The prehistoric shores of the Old Lake have been determined, and there are obvious signs of the ruins of human settlements scattered around them, preserved underwater for 7,000 years. Besides this physical evidence of a flood, there is a curious connection between the location of the hypothetical flood and the cultures which may have spread out from there. Archaeologists long focused on Egypt and Sumer as locations for ancient civilization. In more recent times, they have increasingly begun to look northward toward the Anatolian Peninsula 
just to the south of the Black Sea, for other signs of early civilization. In a future episode on proto-cities, I will describe one of those proto-cities, Katalhuyuk, which apparently flourished around 7000 BC. And a previous episode covered the discovery of Gobekli Tepe, an ancient site of gathering for our hunter-gatherer ancestors, also located in the region falling between Mesopotamia and Anatolia. It is interesting to wonder whether or not these settlements were outliers of an even greater civilization farther north, thriving along the shores of the lake, now known as the Black Sea. The mystery deepens when you consider some other cultures that have tenuous but possibly quite real connections to the Black Sea. The next episode in this podcast series will cover the Indo-Europeans, a Bronze Age culture that most likely sped out from the region of the northeast of the Black Sea and populated most of Europe and a good portion of places like Iran and India, starting in the period just shortly after this hypothetical flood. The cultures which they produced in these areas also carried with them myths of great floods. In fact, the Greeks, who had their own flood myth previously discussed in this episode, were descendants of these Indo-Europeans. Did the Indo-Europeans depart this area of the world and migrate into regions east and west, carrying with them their own oral versions of this ancestral memory, this recollection of a great flood in the Black Sea region? The ancient Greeks also preserve a story about an ancient society that may have existed in the Black Sea area. In the next series of podcasts, more than 20 episodes after this one, I will move on from the ancient Near East and begin to study the Greeks. One of the Greeks' greatest philosophers was a man named Socrates, who lived in the 5th century BC. A disciple of his, Plato, recorded and likely augmented the dialogues of this great man. Found in the dialogues, which I will cover later in a much later episode and in greater detail, these dialogues describe an ancient society known as Atlantis and describe as well its demise in a terrible cataclysm that included catastrophic flooding. More than one historian has suggested that the Atlantis story may have its origins in the Black Sea area. Archaeological digs can sometimes turn prehistory into history. They remove the veil covering mysterious eras in the human past and turn speculation into fact. This happened with Sumer, which was simply unknown to historians a couple centuries ago. Perhaps future investigations into the Black Sea will reveal to us the truth about these ancient stories of a great flood and why so many cultures preserve this myth. But however the flood myth came about, and whether or not the various cultures that tell of an ancient deluge are in any way connected, this story is important for our Western traditions, just as important, if not more important, than the stories of Adam and Eve or that of Cain and Abel. Previously mentioned was the abiding theme for many narratives in Western cultures that it is possible to really start over, both on a personal and a societal level, to eradicate one's past and begin again, to make a fresh start, to begin with a blank slate, these ideas either have their origin in Noah's flood or in the people that were responsible for the crafting of the tale. Either way, the story of Noah's flood has become for all of us a story of our own hopes sometimes, our own desires to erase mistakes, to right wrong, and perhaps most of all, to have an opportunity to live in a world in which those errors and wrongs are not only corrected, but actually forgotten, because we are living in a new world, starting again at square one. My repetitious use of these figures of speech about renewal hopefully shows that the cataclysm of Noah's flood has become for us now a very important part of our fundamental psychology. Such is the power of catastrophe, and such is the power of a good story.
But this episode is called Cataclysms, a plural term, and in addition to discussing the value people have always placed in stories of disaster, I do want to discuss how cataclysms in prehistory may have impacted early modern humans. The flood scenario already discussed probably happened sometime during the Neolithic, as human civilization, so far as we know, was really just beginning to appear, though the recent discovery of Gobekli Tepe has already overturned much of our previously solidified thinking about prehistory. However, there are some compelling theories about earlier disasters that may have had impacts just as significant as Noah's flood on the course of human events. The possible items of discussion are too many to fit into a single podcast, and as I have stated many times before, I am not going to get bogged down in any point of history, especially when we have not even really begun to discuss history that is actually Western rather than that of the Near East. So I will tell you briefly about two more prehistoric cataclysms before ending this episode and moving on. Sometime around 20,000 BC, the glaciers began to recede, and the last glacial maximum had come to an end. A warm period for the global climate, which extends to our present day, had begun. It began slowly. The glaciers did not disappear overnight, but the trend for several thousand years after that point was definitely toward a warmer world. However, studies of the sediment from this period show that there was a bump in the road on the way to a warmer, wetter world. There is a thousand-year period, known as the Younger Dryas, from about 11 to 10,000 BC, which was significantly cooler, a seeming return to the conditions of a glacial maximum period. A thousand years may seem like a lot to you, but geologically it is a strangely short period, and science does not have a good explanation for why such a cool period may have begun, nor why it might have ended. There are many theories about the possibilities. Among these theories is the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis. Proponents of this idea state that a fragment, or fragments of a comet or asteroid, struck the Earth, probably somewhere in North America, around the year 11,000 BC. This impact, according to the hypothesis, caused an immediate and lasting climate change around the world. It also likely killed many North American Indians. Some speculate further that it may have been a factor in the extinction of much of the large North American mammal life, such as mammoths and saber-toothed tigers, and possibly brought about an end of the Clovis culture there, which had developed during the migration of people across the Bering Strait into North America a few thousand years before. The scientific evidence for this theory is considerable, but the impact hypothesis has as many critics as it has proponents. The details over which they argue, however, are not pertinent to this podcast, but we do not need this particular hypothesis to be true. There is no doubt that humanity has seen its share of impacts over the last several hundred thousand years. This was not always assumed to be the case, though. When modern science was in its infancy in the early modern period, those centuries immediately following the Middle Ages, there was a tendency to look upon stories in the Bible and those found in other mythical traditions as completely fabulous accounts, tales cut from whole cloth and almost entirely unbelievable. The stories, so the reasoning went, were invented to help keep people in line, Noah's flood, for example, is at its heart a moral story, that society must maintain certain standards of good conduct or risk divine wrath and destruction. Stories in particular that seemed to stretch the imagination were those that involved celestial events. Fire rains down from the sky during the story of Abraham in Genesis, destroying the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In other traditions, divine wrath in the form of falling fire also appears, destroying cities, setting fire to the world. The skies go suddenly and inexplicably dark. Bright stars appear in the sky and guide wise men across a desert to find the king of the Hebrews. 
Such tales were assumed to be untrue in their entirety, possibly because such things were not noticed during the times of these early men of science. As time has passed, though, astronomers have begun to realize that the, occur the Earth occasionally experiences quiet periods in which there are few interactions with celestial objects, and only the occasional falling star may be noted. The early modern period, in which these ancient stories were cast aside as ridiculously false, appears to have been such a quiet period. At other times in history, though, meteorites and other celestial bodies frequently intersected the orbital path of the Earth, creating enthralling scenes in the sky both night and day, and on some occasions actually wreaking havoc on the face of the planet. You may have noticed in our own time there's been an increase in encounters and reports of meteorites, especially that which exploded over Russia in the year 2013. More and more, it appears that many of our ancestors, both prehistoric and otherwise, probably lived during active ast astronomical periods in which burning rocks fell from the sky much more frequently. However, we may dispute their interpretation of such events. They do not appear to have been making this stuff up. There is another hypothesis, interesting though entirely unsubstantiated, which suggests that sites like that of Gobekli Tepe, which would have been built not long after the Younger Dryas, were constructed out of fear, out of some desire to mediate with the gods that had rained down fire with the Younger Dryas impact, which may have lit up the sky worldwide as burning comet fragments coursed through the heavens and brought in their wake a sudden and precipitous climate change that would have disturbed the customary way of living for every human being on Earth. There is no hard evidence for this perspective, but it is an interesting story, and in one way or another, it must have happened in the past. Our ancestors must have witnessed more than one colossal impact with a comet fragment or a small asteroid, bodies too small to wreak the destruction that wiped out the dinosaurs, but big enough to at least terrify people and probably alter the weather, if not the climate, for some time. Perhaps stories like that of Sodom and Gomorrah are memories of such destruction, interpretations of calamitous events like the Younger Dryas impact, which needed explanation, because there is nothing more terrifying than living in a world whose random events have no meaning, like a story that has no theme. The Younger Dryas Impact is a hypothesis. The explosion of the ancient volcano, known as Toba, on the Indonesian island of Sumatra, is a fact. Researchers have used potassium-argon dating methods to determine that the last eruption of this volcano happened around 75,000 years ago. When it did happen, it released as, it released as much as 3,000 cubic kilometers of matter, much of this in the form of lava. But a good 800 cubic kilometers of this matter was thrown into the atmosphere in the form of volcanic ash. Clearly, this explosion would have killed all nearby human and animal life. Perhaps, as well, there was a tsunami that could have reached the shores of places as far away as Africa, India, and Australia with devastating effect. Very likely, though, is a dramatic cooling period in the aftermath, like that mentioned in connection with the hypothetical Younger Dryas impact. The eruption happened during an interglacial period and may have been responsible for starting the glacial period which began shortly thereafter according to some researchers. It is difficult to say how this event may have impacted humans, though it is certain that the effects were harmful in the extreme, as the cooling would have upended whatever habits and customs human tribes had for hunting game in the Paleolithic and would have altered wildlife populations significantly. Genetic science also has an interesting contribution to this event in the human past. 
The methods of historical research through gene studies are still new and use methods which are not completely without their critics. However, a strongly supported study suggests that there was a bottleneck in human genetic variation that appeared about 70,000 years ago. According to the research, all human genes today are descended from those of about 10,000 individuals that lived at that time. Some of these same researchers have conjectured that the Toba eruption, eruption drastically reduced the global human population and resulted in this aforementioned bottleneck, a time of population decline, which humanity may have just barely survived. This theory may or may not be true, but the eruption definitely happened, and it must have been hard on humans, as it would have been hard on every living thing on Earth at the time. But the severity with which it impacted early modern humans, who would have included Neanderthals and Denisovans at the time, remains theoretical. However, it makes for a very dramatic story, like the stories that humans have always told each other about adversity and about overcoming it. It is very moving to imagine that all that we know today, all the splendor and the horror of our history, all the blood that runs in our veins, is due to a handful of hardy survivors hunkering down in the thousand-year volcanic winter that followed this eruption. Without them holding on to life, struggling bravely against the rapidly changing elements, and doing so for no greater purpose than to simply avoid annihilation, Without them, we do not have communication satellites, we do not have modern medicine, we do not have impressionist art, skyscrapers, jet planes, the works of Shakespeare, the internet. Neither do we have Gilgamesh, Moses, King David, Cleopatra, Julius Caesar, the Virgin Mary, Charlemagne, St. Francis, Galileo, Newton, Benjamin Franklin, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa. The list goes on, everything and every one, all thanks to the thankless endurance of those intrepid survivors in a dark and cold world. We may hope that, in addition to all these other gifts which, which they have endowed us, let us hope that our early modern human ancestors have also transmitted to us their bravery in the face of daunting challenges like those that we continue to face in our present day. Thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast. I am making slow, pro plodding progress toward the history of the West. There will be two more episodes on prehistory, one about Indo-Europeans and another about proto-cities. After that, I will begin to tell the story of the civilizations of the ancient Near East. I expect that, overall, there will be about a total of 30 episodes concerning these matters before I progress on to the ancient Greeks. At which, at which point you will begin to see many more connections to Western culture. I hope that you are willing to hang in there and that you enjoy the content as we make our way toward Heracles, Odysseus, Leonidas, Plato, Pericles, Alexander, and others. Until the next episode, thank you again for listening. <laughs>